Shut up and sit down. everybody i hope everybody is having a good weekend i lost all the shit hold on give me a second i lost everything (laughs) i also know um all the podcast numbers and i don't know my own i have to think about it when somebody asks me my cell phone number um because uh, i'll be like okay hold on a minute i'll have to think about it but I can rattle off the uh, the host call in and pin numbers for um, the podcast if anybody asks. It's craziness, just craziness. Um, I'm very bad with numbers as a rule. Um, my township crops continue to be a problem. Uh, I still don't have enough strawberries. Okay. Um, <laughs> I I have had the same cell phone number. Oh my gosh, it has been two decades. A nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, yeah, I've had the same cell phone number since nineteen ninety eight. I just carry it with me wherever I go. Bring it along. So yeah. Anyways, um. Tonight we're going to talk about a question that um, Edie asked last night. She asked it in the chat room, and um, I asked her to put it on the page, and she did. And so we're going to do a podcast about it. Um, And her question is, how do you draw the distinction between extra details that may not be necessarily relevant to the plot, but serve the purpose of rounding out the story and making her richer and fuller, and those details that are just extra padding and can be cut to make the story tighter? Um, personally, I ask myself two questions. Does it serve my plot? Does it serve my characterization? Because, now it's ideal if it does both. But if it does one, then it's important. Like, for instance, um, Julie, what's your, de- what's your basics? And then we'll get into some examples. Um, well, I would agree with that. I, I do look at those two things. One of the other things I look at, because sometimes you put in, there is sometimes a certain amount of scene setting. I mean, I do, I'm, very, I'm a very light scene setter. I don't do much of it. But some of it, I mean, you've got to give some details of place and circumstance. Otherwise, everything's just happening in a void, right? Um, so one of the things I look at is, is the de- those kind of details should be, almost unnoticed by the reader it helps them set the scene but it doesn't pull their attention because if something is pulling the attention the reader's going to expect it to go somewhere and if a detail is not going to go anywhere and it's pulling attention then it shouldn't be there it's sort of like having a 
a really fascinating world-building element that serves absolutely no purpose. Um, and you spend a lot of words describing it. <laughs> and then at the, at the end of the story, it's there for no reason. And it's like your audience is left scratching their head going, what, but what about that thing that you did? What about did? that thing? What you about know? that thing? What about that thing? What about that vampire that showed up in the middle of Act 4? I don't What was he? <laughs> vampires. Don't we need to talk about vampires? No, apparently it's not part of the story. <laughs> so, um, you just don't. One does not just throw in a vampire. <laughs> I had a long conversation with an author once about details she was throwing when she was throwing everything in the kitchen sink into her world building and I was like but the thing is is that you've got this you can't just put time travel time travel the possibility of time travel into a story and have it be nothing but a side note well I'm capable of time travel but it's not a good idea (laughs) and that's the some total of it, right? It's like there's all this discussion about this person's ability to time travel, and then it's shut down with, but it's not a good idea. And I'm like, but then you never do anything with it. I mean, literally, it, that's, it, it, it's like this distraction for a half a chapter that goes nowhere. So, nowhere. Stuff that's like, I mean, to me, that's like, a, you could call it bait and switch. You could call it a red herring. I don't know. But it's stuff that leads the reader to an expectation that you're going to, that this is going to be relevant. Because usually when you're putting in an irrelevant detail and really focusing on it, it odds that should be foreshadowing of some kind. <laughs> it would be it's, like, you guys know that scene in Galaxy Quest where they talk about the Omega-13? Uh-huh. Okay, it would be like they did it, but then he never uses it. It it never comes back right. up. And at the end of the movie, you're like, well, what about the Omega-13? <laughs> that was a big moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he even had that cool line about, you, know, you can change your mind, make a new decision. <laughs> <clears throat> Thirteen seconds is a lot. I read this story where there was this intricate discussion about coffee, okay? How one character did or didn't like coffee, how they liked their coffee, what the function of it was, da 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 The thing is, they were being, uh, their potential romantic partner was asking them questions about, about their coffee preferences, right? So I'm thinking that there's, this is leading to something. He's doing something with his information. He is, he is ferreting out. The, the scoop on the coffee for a purpose. He wasn't. He wasn't. <laughs> and it's it's fine to have a a conversation that shows the ebb and flow between people. But when you really when you when you dig in on a, on a subject like that, and it it kind of starts to like a coffee interrogation, a coffee interrogation, and then it doesn't go anywhere. It, it's not being used for anything. There's not some elaborate coffee gift coming up that's going to you know fail spectacularly or succeed spectacularly or get somebody laid. I don't know. But it just didn't have any function. It was like a thousand words of that focused intently on coffee and not on the characters. And it was but here's just the thing. craziness. As a, as a coffee drinker, if someone spent that much time quizzing me about my coffee choices, I would expect coffee. 
I yes. was likely to expect coffee than I would be an engagement ring. I would be like, well, where's my coffee? <laughs> what do you mean? You ask coffee? about I mean, Why did you fucking ask me? <laughs> what, the, what the fuck was the point of those overtures, you know? Um, <laughs> I thought there was a plan. And, and, that involved coffee. And you can... You can rem- you can remind uh, a, a reader little details about a character, like you know Gibbs and his coffee. He brought back. And you don't need to explain that Gibbs like coffee, right? You don't need to go into that part. But if you just can have the passing comment, you know Tony brought back a tray of coffee, you know a latte for himself and three drip coffees for Gibbs. That line is enough. It reminds the reader that Gibbs is a lunatic about coffee. That he'll drink and he it lives cold. on it. Yeah, he'll drink it at room temperature. That he'll take other people's coffee and drink it if he doesn't have enough. And that Tony doesn't like drip coffee. You said a lot with one little sentence. Getting more into it than that is focusing on coffee, which is irrelevant. And I think that's like one of the really important things when you're looking at details is the detail is supposed to serve to remind you something about the character, not the detail itself, which is why I, I hate it when I feel like a story is trying to teach me something. When I start getting that vibe that I'm in school, I'm like, all right, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> I am I not here for a class on metallurgy. Because of a moment in Fall for You, I got accused of preaching to my audience, and um, the real purpose of the of, of the moment went right over the reader's head because uh, it was about Riley's characterization versus what he was doing. Um, and he, when he's in the phone store, he asks the person behind the counter about donating his electronics to a charity that the store is a part of. Um, now, the reader thought that I was just kind of plugging the charity, but no, it was about Riley and his automatic, his connection to that and saying, okay, just, if you guys still do this, I'd like you to donate my, my things to this, I think it's domestic violence or um, women's shelters kind of thing. Um, and it was a nod to um, his own biological mother's uh, struggle. It wasn't about the charity. It was about Riley. And the reader totally thought I was preaching to her. <laughs> that okay. wasn't the point at all. <laughs> so sometimes the point doesn't get across, right? You can only try. So you just yeah, well, that's, that. that's, that's true. I mean, yeah, you, you can put stuff in and you can do it deliberately and you can use details in a very deliberate way. And it doesn't mean the reader's going to get it. But if, if your deli- your deliberation is the important part um, i mean i i've had i've had stuff stories that i thought were very intricately plotted and i swear that all the reader got out of it was some readers get out of it was oh i really enjoyed that part where you know person a inserted you know tab a into slot b and i'm like really all you got out of that was sex that was like 220k what's the matter with you <laughs> right <laughs> Um, Which is why I find that comment, I'll be in my bunk, really insulting. I know it's a fandom thing, and I get it, but if I lay down 40K and and that's all you have to tell me, keep that to yourself. I don't need to know about your boners. (laughs) 
I mean, if it's like a, if it's like a, and the, and the sex was hot, you know, I love this, you know, the character, their chemistry together was amazing. You know, your character voices were great or whatever. And the sex was smoking hot. That's great. But just, wow, you, you put together this really, this epic and the sex was really good. And it was like, okay, well, (laughs) it's like, uh, it, I, I just, I don't know. I don't know about anybody else, but I find if the most impressive thing in my story to somebody is the sex, I find that actually a little bit disheartening um, because, you know, go read a PWP. Uh, so. I work really hard yeah. on characterization and plot, so I, I don't work hard <laughs> on the sex. So. <laughs> I want you to acknowledge it, damn it. I'm just <laughs> Okay. Um, I actually do have a detail um, in According Hermione Granger. No, not According No, 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 not that one. It's in Blank Space. Um, Blank Space is uh, the story of Harry coming back to Britain, um, having been a war mage with the ICW, and he's taking over the DMLE, and um, he's dating Hermione, and he has this habit of smoking herbals. Um, and it isn't until much later that it's revealed to the reader that he tends to smoke them when he's agitated because they calm him down, that they have a medical-grade calming agent in them, and that basically he's using them to to manage um, the emotional issues that he brought with him out of the war. But the, but the herbal kind of sneaks into the scenes all across the board until that scene with Neville, when he gives Neville one, and Neville's like, damn, no, just mild? This is medical grade. This is going to be out. I'm going to be on my sofa, <laughs> you know? And that's when you find out that, um, that, that Harry's pretty heavily medicated for, um, uh, that he, that he, that there's a hint there that there's some PTSD going on mm-hmm. and that he's very militant and, um, and, and that he uses calming potion to kind of, you know, chill himself out so he doesn't, Kill people, <laughs> willy nilly. <laughs> Wouldn't want to have an accident with my wand. <laughs> but it's but, a little okay, detail so, that it sneaks in. Little, yeah, and sometimes you put in little things that you know that you're rounding out the character, and and actually, I think that the better done it is, the less the reader notices. The mm-hmm. detail they don't zoom in on it, but they get a feel for the character in a way that they wouldn't without those little details. Um, I find if I find little details that draw my attention, I I'm like why is that? Why am I being? It's like why is my attention being pulled towards whatever this thing is? And that's why I start developing this expectation that it's going to go somewhere, as opposed to just a little detail slipped in here or there. Like that bit about Harry smoking the herbals was just kind of threaded through very subtly until it came to a point. So then that was also all about characterization. Yes. So it wasn't like it was yanking your attention constantly. Right. I think a detail that yanks your attention should be plot related. And if it's not plot related, then it has no business whatsoever being because your, your details that, that, that fill out your characters should kind of just meld into the character as you're moving through your work. Yeah. Yeah. 
Now, what, one of the pieces of feedback I had gotten on AO3 when I had DeNovo, DeNovo was the last story. I think it was the last story I posted on AO3. Um, yeah, that was the final was straw, the, wasn't it? <laughs> that was the final straw story, yeah, is the, the, the whole you can do better thing. Um, but um, one of the pieces of feedback I gotten was that somebody found the, 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 the whole, the early scenes, all the stuff between Tony and Pride to be extraneous. And that's fine that they felt that way, you know, that, that it didn't do anything for them. But every scene, every bit of time that Tony had with Pride served a purpose because it's better to show where somebody's at and show where the impetus for change is than, to me, have a character just musing endlessly, that self-reflective thing that goes on for five or six I hate that self-reflection shit. That self-reflective nonsense. I hate nonsense. it. Just musing on canon events and, you know, re-spin. You know, if you, if you can't re-spin canon events without having your character muse on canon events for 2,000 words, you maybe need to go back to the drawing board. Um but the, the, every scene with Pride and Tony was, in part, is showing a contrast between what a healthy mental relationship looks like versus what he has. Pride and Gibbs. Right. Pride and Gibbs. Um, it, it, it puts right. Gibbs under a microphone and a, <laughs> a microscope, and Gibbs does not fare well. No, he does not. And it was, it was I was putting little tiny moments of people being supportive not not making him do things differently but just letting just being supportive of tony being a leader um in beth in pride in jenny to help him come out of his shell as it were and realize his full potential and the stark contrast to that going to be um when gibbs comes back um, there's going to be, you know, a lot of that juxtaposition in the sequel of Gibbs is back and that Gibbs is going to think their relationship hasn't changed. And Tony's used to being treated differently. And then we have Mike Wepler coming in who actually acts like a boss. Um, so that all of the people that I brought into Tony's sphere and the, and the interactions that I had with him were all spaced out and planned carefully to deal with what I felt like were different issues of dysfunction that he picked up in his time under Gibbs' leadership. And seeing, not just in terms of the way they interact with him, but them modeling better behaviors. Um, And then I needed to have that moment, I felt like, with Beth, where Abby punches Tony in the arm, and Beth just tells him that that's not acceptable, it's never acceptable. Um, That was probably the most overt thing that I dealt with was that conversation between the two of them. But um, but I guess I know most readers, I, I didn't get complaints from hardly anybody about Pride in the story. I think most people wish Pride had been in the story more. And then when Tony was kind of at, uh, he had kind of a moment later in the story, and the person he turned to was Pride. So I kind of closed the loop on that and kind of kept them in each other's sphere. So um I crafted his early interactions with Pride very carefully. I picked them very deliberately, but it didn't work for this one reader who thought it was all extraneous to me just patting out my plot or plotting out my word count or something. I don't know. But they didn't like it, which is fine. 
um, people don't have to like everything I write. <laughs> but it did serve to me. It served a purpose, and I think for most readers, they saw the purpose in because um, I was trying to write a realistic turning point for Tony, as opposed to him turning a corner inexplicably. Because people don't typically have abrupt personality changes. It usually takes some some sort of action, some sort of external stimulus usually has to happen for people to make an abrupt change. And I didn't want his change actually to be all that abrupt. I wanted to show that it was a progression and that there was a realistic reason for why he changed and made the changes that he did. But um, I think that they felt like that Tony could have just done that turn on a dime, but that wouldn't have worked for me as characterization, so that's why I didn't write it that way. Well, you know, also, and this is this is going to be ugly, and I might get emails about it, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. There is not a lot of maturity um, in the NCIS fandom as far as um, writing goes, and um, with maturity comes sophistication. And um, if you have to spoon feed your, your reader um, in comprehension, then that reader is not ready to read your work. <laughs> Is that okay? No, what I'm saying is that you are a very clear, concise writer. There is no reason why she should not comprehend what you were attempting to, what you did accomplish, and what you were attempting to do all through that story. And the fact that she didn't get it, it's kind of those people who said they didn't like um, Inception. And I'm like, I just don't think you understood Inception. It's okay. Not to like Inception as long as you understand Inception, but if you don't understand it, then you don't have the tools to like or dislike it. Right. Although you got to you know, I would say that about so. Novo. Um, all through those scenes um, with pride, because I am a slasher and I do wear my goggles, I did fantasize briefly about pride hitting that. And I know he's married, so he wouldn't have. Um, at that point, he was very married. Um, so he wouldn't have, but I did like to imagine it. <laughs> well, I did plot a story because I, 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 I saw the vibe there. I was like, well, I could make that work. I did it's plot so a story fun. where they not Bacula is so late. <laughs> yeah, we're later. Tony and Pride. We have to Pride divorce. They, they get together. So uh, not De Novo. No, De Novo. Yeah. Tony's Ian. Ian is going to put up any of those shenanigans. Tony's very taken in that story. Um, but yeah, but it it was I didn't I don't I don't tend to I can usually tell when I've fallen into an extraneous scene and I do it I'm not saying I don't. Um, the the classic example was when I was having a rough time and I started writing this really long scene about office furniture. Now nobody ever saw that scene because I knew. I, mean, I was 2,000 fucking words in on office chairs, and I was like, like, I was like yeah, what, that's what a am, problem. I'm like, what am I doing? What am I doing? This is not good. Um, and, you know, and if, now, if, if you have a thing for office furniture, that might make you happy. But in general, it didn't serve the plot. It served the plot in no way, because in nothing about – you know, office, office furniture, comfort, acquisition, none of that was relevant to the plot. Because <laughs> so, they weren't going to be using a chair anything. to kill somebody or something. You know, it, it, no. it really had no purpose. 
Now, I wanted to – so I, I kind of had come up with an example of, like, using – A, a, like a, 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 a an activity for a backdrop, and using um, having your characters be doing something while a conversation is happening can be a good narrative device. It can be a good idea because it gives you a way of using action beats to 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 talk about and and to show mood you can show mood you can show who's speaking instead of using dialogue tags so like i i use action beats quite a lot in the story fracture where tony's making pasta while he's having an uncomfortable conversation with elliot spencer and just in um you know you could do things like instead of saying he said you say, you know, I don't think that's the way that's supposed to go. Tony dumped the eggs into the pasta and started kneading. What are we going to do now? And because you have an action beat of Tony's, you don't need a dialogue tag. But you can also then set mood by all of a sudden Tony's pounding on the pasta instead of kneading it. You know, like the whole countertop is vibrating. So you can use things that are happening in the environment with your activity as a way to show shifting mood without saying Tony got pissed off. Um, But where that falls apart is if you zoom in too much on the pasta. Because when you start making the (laughs) pasta itself relevant, you know, if you start getting to some long conversation about how he learned to make this at his granny's knee and, you know, he, he still has the pasta board and he, you know, he, she, she, but she preferred to roll it. You know, he has a board for making this type of pasta, but she always used a fork. And I mean, it's just like, you can't make the pasta relevant. You have to just use the little action beats here or there to help flesh out your action without, you know, because that's how you show, not tell. It is better to show somebody being angry by what they do than to say he was angry. Um, but the example I thought of is I read a story once that went into the Nat's ass details on how to paint a room, how to paint and refinish, drywall a room, um, how to tape it off, how to lay down primer. Uh, everything, how to, how, to, how to paint the windowsills, using your brush, how to get the right amount of paint on the brush. You had one character instructing the other. It was an, a tutorial on how to paint. <laughs> now, I don't know if it was accurate because I never been particularly into actual painting. I've done tape. I've done the taping part. So they actually got all, all that, the taping stuff accurate. But that person went to the um, Gina Yule School um, writing but the thing is, it was the only it was the only the only scene that that was like that, and it was like, I, why are we getting so into the details about painting? And I think my guess, this is my guess, is that they wanted to have some of the right terminology, so they did some research about painting, and because and it's like the fan fiction writers are particularly bad about this. If they've researched something and they've learned it, by God, you're going to learn it too. <laughs> like that information <laughs> is not going to waste. It's like. Fuck that. I had to learn this. You bitches are learning it now, too. Um, it can't just be so that they have some sense of authority about what they're writing. No, it's, they're going to pass on the information. But you could have two characters 
um, painting is actually a really good activity because you can show a lot of emotion in how someone swaps a paintbrush into a bucket and stomps off. Um, paint gets splattered everywhere. Um, you could show humor. There's a lot you can do with that backdrop. But when you start delving on the details of painting, that only serves a function in one case in which I can think of. And you kind of have to telegraph it. It's like, let's say, let's say you've got Ziva and Tony, and they're painting a room. They're remodeling a house. And Tony knows how to remodel. He knows how to do this. And Ziva keeps telling him, no, no, we have to take, we have to be careful. We can't take, you know, we have, we have to do this quickly. So don't replace that drywall. Just, just tape over the seams and we'll just plaster it and move on. And she's very insistent about the way he does it. And Tony's like, well, that's really not the way I was instructed to do it, but all right, I'll just, I don't want to fight with you, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. All right, so there's all this, this discussion about how to properly to properly drywall. If that goes nowhere, it's an irrelevant detail. If Ziva had a dead body in the wall, it's relevant detail. And fun detail. A, <laughs> yes. And if Tony finds out later, and then it all comes together for the reader, it's like that's why they were discussing whether or not he should replace the drywall or just tape it is because she had a dead body in the wall. And Tony finds out, and he's instantly suspicious. He finds a dead body, and he goes, oh, my God, his first suspect is Eva because she's the one who told him not to replace the drywall. And all of a sudden, that whole conversation is relevant later in your story when the dead body is found. But if there's no dead body behind that wall or some magic trunk or something, all of that was complete nonsense. It didn't serve any purpose. <laughs> now, everybody's had cannons. It's totally a dead body in the wall. <laughs> There's always a dead body in the wall. Didn't you ever watch Bones? There's, there were dead bodies everywhere. The one that I had the hardest time with was the dead body in the tanning bed. I had the hardest time with the dead body in the dumpster, and we cannot talk about it because I will throw up thinking about it. I, that is the Bones is the only TV show that I have ever watched that actually made me physically ill on three different occasions. And the dumpster was... Oh, yeah. No, we're not talking about it. it. We're not talking about it. Mm. We're not talking about it. Mm. No. I'm a sympathetic sympathetic gagger. Okay, so let's say there's a magic trunk in the attic, right? Um, You could actually do some really interesting little details. Like, let's say there's a story where you're writing a team of story where there's a magic trunk in the attic. And every time they need something in the attic, Noah just, you know, he very casually goes, oh, I'll take care of that son. Go ahead and go to bed. And you don't draw attention to it, okay? But every time it comes up that something needs to go into the attic or there needs to be cots in the attic, Noah's the one who goes and does it. And then you have a scene later on where Noah's not around and Styles needs to go and get something out of the attic. He's like, yo, he, he hadn't been up here in years. And he just realized his dad was always living in the attic and he goes up in the attic. And there's a trove of pixies living in a magical trunk in the attic. And his dad's been feeding them. Um, <laughs> all of a sudden, that little tiny detail is clear once you get there that Noah's been steering Styles away from the attic and trying to keep him away from these pixies. Um, so that little tiny detail you sprinkled in is becomes very useful 
that little tiny bit of conversation about, oh, yeah, I'll take that up for you, son. Don't worry about it. But if you never do anything with the addict, does that even talking about, I'll take that up, to the, I'll take that up for you, son, go ahead and go to bed. Yeah, it can be part of a natural conversation, but how much of that kind of thing do you need? So, <laughs> we're crafting a story here. Ziva was hiding Star's trunk, which was what Harry Potter's <laughs> living space in a wall. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that why he didn't want Tony opening up she? that wall. That effort, yeah. Someone sent Tony a magical trunk. Ziva intercepted it. She didn't know it was magical, but she couldn't open it. She didn't want Tony to have it. So she walled it into a wall, not knowing that Harry Potter was in it. (laughs) And now she's guilty of a lot of things. (laughs) Yeah. The idea, actually, of of, of Noah having a a little colony of pixies. In the attic, <laughs> like maybe maybe Claudia was a pixie and she was cursed to be human, and those are her. It's that, her family. That's like her pixie. That's her pixie family. Yeah. I'm gonna stop and be like, you mean my grandparents have been in the attic all this time and you didn't tell me? <laughs> well, wait. You mean your best friend's a werewolf and you didn't tell me? Tell me. <laughs> for chat, son. Well, if I'd known about the pixies, I would have been inclined to tell you about the werewolf. <sighs> but I find that the, which details to include and which details to leave out is such a... It's one of those things I think you get it really does come with practice. There are some people I think who kind of have a, they've kind of have an intuitive sense about that kind of thing. And it's probably somebody who reads a lot of really good work. Um, if you read a lot of crap and that's your primary reading source is crap, <laughs> you're not going to intuitively, you're not going to pick up the skills kind of intuitively that you would if you were reading authors with really good craft. So, you know. Which is how bad habits get passed around fandom. Uh, yeah. Somebody sees and 30K oh, chapters apparently are normal. Okay. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's brilliant. I'll just post, I'll just post 300 words in this chapter and call it done because it feels like a good stopping point. <laughs> These days, whenever I see a note, an author note that ends on a cliffhanger where it says this felt like a good stopping point, A, I can tell that they were panting their way through. But B, um, it felt like a good stopping point does not mean you thought you were done. What it means was you were at a high drama moment and you wanted to keep people reading, so you put in a cliffhanger. And I can tell because when the very next sentence is the very next part of the scene in the first chapter, in the next chapter, it's like that feels it felt I'm like you do that every other chapter is like this. Quote, it felt like a good stop con- point. Contrived Ugh. bullshit. You it's get one or two bullshit. of those high drama moments. I mean seriously, one or two of those high drama moments. And 
And generally, when I put out a, put one of those moments in where I get a stop at a high drama moment, or sometimes for me it's a high humor moment, the net the first sentence of the next chapter is not the next sentence that would have come after whatever that moment was. So, for instance, the last chapter I posted of Century um, was "Holy shit, Hydra made Superman." The next chapter does not start in that same scene. It starts the next day. <laughs> It's just, I just, that's just, I just find that to be bizarre when people literally break a chapter and pick up the next chapter with the literal next sentence. Well, honestly, it, mean you're it not doesn't flow well either because you're going to have all this minutia with him, um, you know, medical testing and um, him being weak and you know, how much sun does he need. And these are not details that you need for your plot. No. And the, the fact that he needs sunlight, that he can, and you don't even find out until the next day that he can actually convert. Um, sunlight into into matter. He can his body can convert energy into matter. So he gains forty pounds out in the sun, and um, so he has a very serious conversation with Bruce the next day. He goes, that's going to stop, right? If I go on a picnic, I'm not going to turn into a blimp. I just want to be sure. <laughs> I'm not going to keep expanding if I'm out in the sun. I need to, otherwise I'm going to become a night owl. Because <laughs> he has like this mummy. Like, what do you mean I gained weight in the sun? <laughs> He's like poking um, his waistline. What? What? <laughs> what? What do you mean? Well, actually, Claire, he has that conversation. Bruce, Bruce is the one who responds. And he's, when Tony says that, he goes, you didn't become a plant. That's actually what I have Bruce say. It's not like you became a plant. <laughs> but it's not – Tony being out of it, and all, I mean, once we got to the point where there's like that big reveal and that – I you know the funny the the funny line which I I didn't think it actually was all that funny but <laughs> again one of those times if I'm deliberately funny it would fall flat but if it's accidental it's probably funny as fuck. Um, I burst out laughing and I don't do that often and I was like ha ah! <laughs> I could just see I could just see RDJ delivering that line like I could see it and hear it it was great. Um, so, but I, it's just, that was where the interest ended was at that moment of he's okay. A, he's okay. We know he's okay. And B, um, we've revealed that he does recharge in the sun. Okay. So that's where the interesting stuff ends. We've done all the lead up, the rising action into the reveal of that piece. Everything that comes after that on that day is boring. It's irrelevant. Yes, I could have used some of that as a backdrop for Steve and Tony to get to know each other, but there are more interesting backdrops for them to get to know each other than Tony sitting in medical getting poked at. I mean, it's just so boring. Very boring. And when there are interesting backdrops, because you've got intrigue and you've got spies and you've got the hunt for Hydra and you've got Tony and Steve, Tony Stark and Steve kind of still a little bit tense relationship and Steve and Bucky, you've got all these dynamics that are interesting going on. Them getting to know each other over, you know, a phlebotomy kit is not particularly the backdrop I would choose for the conversation that starts to round out their relationship. Oh, Tony's totally designing Tony a cape, and Tony's going to say no. And we all know which Tony I meant in each instance there. 
<laughs> no capes. Are you trying to kill me? <laughs> what have I done to you? <laughs> the minutia of um of my character's environment and um their day to day activities aren't particularly important to me. Um I use meals for conversations, um and you know, getting together moments and um socialization, which is important for your character. Um, I skip bathroom activities, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because these are things that aren't important to me as a writer, so they're not things that I focus on. Um, if my character has to drive somewhere, he might leave his apartment, and then the next scene, he's at the place he needs to be. I don't need to have him in the car. You know, these are these are details that um, drag your pace. And that's another thing, is if it's not serving your plot and it's not serving your character, and all it's there for is your ego, that's what it boils down to. If it's not serving your character or your plot, it's um, it's filler and it's ego material. And there's honestly nothing wrong with either of those things in limited circumstances because you do have to have um, – because sometimes you can use that kind of minutia to slow your pace if you're going too fast, if, if, if things are moving at a faster clip than you want. But you could also remove those things to increase your pace. To give yourself um, a break between moments, so to speak. Yeah. Because, I mean, sometimes a um, when you have too many things coming one on top of the other, your reader can get to feel a little, a little winded, you know, a little bit too... And sometimes that that can be good to a point, but you don't want if you've got if you've got a, something novel length, you can't have all of your rising action be at that clip. Because well, like I know that they, chapter they, that I put in between the uh, Hermione and Harry's marriage and the, the domestic violence situation with her cousin, that chapter wasn't originally there because I didn't. It 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 really it it's more. I, it was a buffer. Mm-hmm. So that you know, because Julie said I slapped her in the face with that. <laughs> it was true. <laughs> it was true. It was bam, bam. It was a it was a sucker punch twice. Um, so putting that extra chapter in there, um, put a buffer between the two um, two big events, um, gave the reader room to breathe, and it kind of you know kind of expanded your view of their relationship which was probably needed since I didn't um, do any. Um, I, I think the intimacy helped since you didn't get the sex. Yeah. I mean, the, the chapter didn't, didn't feel extraneous at all. And yeah. it, it, it helped with the pacing. Because you want to, even when you're doing something like that, where you're putting something in, to help with a pacing issue, whether to speed it. Usually if you're putting something in, it's to slow it down, but you might be actually putting something in to speed up your pace by putting in something that's in a slow section. You might be putting in something that's very fast-paced and quick, and you know. but you need to make it relevant to your story. It can't just be something. 
it can't be it can't truly be like just something you pulled out of your ass and go oh well i'm gonna i'm gonna wax poetic about you know defensive magical theory for for three thousand words and slow my pace down you're gonna murder your pace because nobody cares i mean i I got this Harry Potter story recommended to me once. This author had done a lot of work on explaining magical theory. And I know because they explained all their, their magical theory. It was like this 200,000-word story, and easily half of it was explaining magical theory, her interpretation of it for her world building. I stopped – I mean, it got to the point that I – you know, you'd get 5,000 words of explanation of the magical theory at work, and I would forget what plot point we were on. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what's going on in this story anymore. Who cares? It was just like, this is just so fucking dumb. Um, My spirit died. I'm, I'm gone. I'm done. It's like <sighs> she, she clearly put a lot of thought into it and really wanted to share it. And some readers will find that fascinating. But in general, I would say that's not great craft. Um, but it's why but again, there's you can say- do things in fan fiction that you can't do professionally. Yeah. <laughs> you can get and away there's with room a lot. for things and there's room for things in fan fiction that you can't get away with professionally because nobody's going to buy that. But the person who really has a boner for magical theory is going to really enjoy reading it. And they're so. reading the shit out of it. <laughs> But, you know, there are, if you look at, like, you know, different types of narrative structure models, uh, like the the worst possible one they try to show um, rising action, falling action, that kind of thing, it's the one that looks like a bell curve. I find mm. that to be so inaccurate. And the reason why I find it to be inaccurate is because it implies that there's as much falling action as there is rising action. Um it's just a bad it, – it, and the thing is, it's not that it's wrong. You have rising action, you have the climax, you have falling action and denouement. But it's not wrong. It's just that visual representation makes you think you're doing something you're not doing. And one of the things that might help you to determine where you need to figure out where to insert some detail is to try to think about what your own arc looks like. Because a lot of time, my arc, this is a very common arc for me, is you have a very slight upward curve at the beginning, what I'll call it the setup. It's where we're kind of establishing the setup phase. Then you have a fairly sharp rise in the rising action. And then the climax, and then I click, kick you off a cliff. <laughs> That's typically my model. Um, I I'm don't be honest. do a lot of falling action. You guys ever watch Prices Right? You know that one where he's climbing the mountain and he's yodeling, you know, the game? Yeah. And, like, if you go too far, if you, like, he he falls off the top, that's my plot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's going to scream all the way big, down. There's not this big, <laughs> elegant slope going down that matches the uphill climb. That doesn't – for starters, that would suck, right? Because that would imply the climax is in the middle boring. of the book. Right? It would be boring right. as fuck because that much falling action is boring. So if you're somebody who writes a or you have long ten ending, I'm looking at you, Tolkien. Yeah, Tolkien, we, we, we know you're being paid by the word, dude. Um, <laughs> and it's like he wrote ten endings and said, which one do you want? And they went, we'll take them all. It's like, ugh. 
sci-fi fantasy geeks existed even then. Um, but if, if you're somebody who has a, like a long setup phase and then your rising action is almost a straight up hill, I mean, your rising action is, that can make your reader feel in a, in a, in a figurative way kind of winded because your action rises so sharply when you get, when you get going. And that's where you might look at some strategic, where can you slow it down without hurting your climax? Where can you give your reader a breather to bring in some other detail? And that's where you could do something that focuses on character work. You could do something that um, is a little Easter egg for the end of the story. You could do something that sets up for the next book if you're planning to write a sequel. Um, but it, would, it helps understand the path of your own narration and what you usually do. Because if you're somebody who, like I said, I, there, I know quite a few writers who write in that model where when they start on rising action, it is one event after the other. And it's like, it's like you get to, you're like, Ugh. and then if, and then almost, you can almost not even sure you hit the climax when you hit it because you're just too wound up. So um, if you ever read a book or a story that gives you anxiety and you don't know why, I mean, there's no violence, there's no death, you know, there's just a whole bunch of boom, 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 and you get really anxious, that's because the author has has dragged you up a ladder that's <laughs> about 50 floors, and they're about to toss you off. <laughs> yeah. Straight up. And if you're not somebody who writes falling action well or writes it much, I mean, just, sometimes we don't need a lot of falling action. But if you're not somebody who that's not your specialty, but you're really good with rising action, finding some little breaks and breaking your pace in the rising action can keep your falling action from feeling so abrupt. It feels less like being thrown off of a high rise and a little bit more like just a, you know, a steep downhill ski, you know, kind of thing. Cause you don't want somebody to feel you want them to fit the end of the story and go, that was great. Not, oh, my God, I can't bear. I can't bear to live. You know, that's not the experience you want people to have because <laughs> they feel like they've been hit in the head with a brick. <laughs> and this is a case of where you might want to slow your pace down a little bit. That was the example I was giving. Was where, where slowing your pace is not always a bad thing. Um, I'm trying to think of things that I find to be odd sometimes that people zoom in and talk about a lot in stories. Um, Extravagant sexual positions. Uh, Look, let me tell you something. I don't need to know where the dude's left and right hands are because inevitably he's going to end up with three right hands <laughs> in this scene mm-hmm. because you're not going to move it. And then he's going to be putting it somewhere else at the same time as he's putting it on her butt or on his butt or whatever. And then you've got a character with five arms. It, it's un- it's unnecessary. You need to be careful with that. Ex- extraneous appendages during sex. Um, it's not sexy. 
just avoid left and right. Don't ever use the terms left and right because um, it, they don't. They don't. They aren't. They aren't serving any purpose. Usually, usually, you know. Um, in X Files, I wrote a character that had one arm. Um, it really was not necessary to specify <laughs> which hand was at work. Okay, um, and yet I would see people writing writing that character, and they would talk about what he did with his right hand. I'm like, he only has a right hand, and in the, in in canon, his prosthesis was not functional. So it's not like he was doing anything with his left hand other than knocking stuff around, you know. Um, so I always thought it very bizarre when I see all this stuff about right hand, right hand, right hand. Um, we know he only has the one hand. <laughs> yeah, there's there's, okay. there's one. Well, there's one, yeah. Um, or something like, you know, he would um, – he break, you know, he he reached down, you know, between his legs with his with his right hand and bracing his weight on his left prosthesis as opposed to his right prosthesis. <laughs> Stop it! Stop it with the left and right. The temptation to use left and right, just search, for, you know, just don't do it. Just don't don't you don't need to you don't need to specify which side. Because inevitably, like I said, you're going to end up with a multiple right hands, and it's just ridiculous. And then your reader's like counting. They've got a notebook out. <laughs> They're going to send you an email. Did you know that in sex scene that takes place in such and such place that your character, like, touched somebody's ass, their head, and their left foot all with their right hand at the same time? <laughs> mm-hmm. Or they'll notice, and also when you're disposing of clothes, you don't need to keep track of it all. It just it, it's off, right? Because inevitably, there's that person who notices that you failed to take off the right sock. <laughs> who cares? Who cares? And then they're thinking, I hate to say this. I don't know how I feel about that because I don't know if I need you to know that John likes to leave his socks on during sex because that's kind of terrible. I hate men who leave their socks on during sex. That's so unsexy. And then they're going to send you an email. <laughs> I'm like just 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 some things you don't want to hear about. Trust me, there are some things you don't want to hear about. Um, I go back oh, and read the original question. One of the question. worst things I ever saw in a fic. First, worst things I ever saw. Look, if you've ever had sex without a condom, you know that what goes in eventually comes out. Oh, dude, come on! I was like, where is she going with this? <laughs> There is no need to explain or demonstrate semen leaking or flowing out of any orifice that it might end up in during your sex scene. This is a detail that no one needs. And pretty much no one wants. There's this very tiny segment of population that that is really into... Now, I'm talking about felching, which I don't like to read, um, or even snowballing, which I don't like to read. I'm talking about actually just going to the bathroom and stuff. Just no, okay? We don't need to clean up. 
clean it also, clean up on unless floor. you're writing a particular fetish, there is no reason for there to be a discussion between your two characters that are about to engage in anal sex as to whether or not the bottom needs to have a bowel movement. Oh, my God. <sighs> reality, yes. You're not writing reality. <laughs> so stop it. <laughs> These are not details well, that anybody is, needs. This is sort of like, um, I think we've determined that you can hit two W's before you trigger the HTTP for all of you who are about to say you. Um, I think you, I think you can do two. Um, if you... I find stories that focus a lot on the cleanup after sex to be, I find that off-putting. And and the more detail, the more off-putting, obviously, especially if they get into certain details. Um, But it's just, they cleaned up. That should be enough. You know, and, 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 you know, elaborate discussion of what they did with the condom. You know, they removed it, tied it off wrapped it in a tissue, wiped off his dick. It's like, okay, I get it. He took off the fucking condom. Can we move on, please? Dear Arthur, we know you know what to do with a condom. Thank you. Appreciate it. Although, I have to say, the number of men I've ever known in my entire life who tied the condom shut before putting it in a tissue, zero. Okay. Yeah, Zero. me too. I've never, no, I've never experienced I've, that. In I've my never life, known ever. a man. I see it in thick that. a lot, but I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> I've never, I have never in my life known a man who was that concerned about making sure his semen stayed in a condom ever. Like, you also, know, dude, they also have... look, it, I've even done it. I've, I, I found a really old thick where I did it. Um, Dudes, if you've ever put two fingers in somebody's ass, um, you would know that it's practically impossible to scissor them. That, yeah. um, that's not how that works. <laughs> Unless they're really relaxed, and in which case, move on. You don't need to do that anyway because they're ready to go. But that's the thing. It's like, and the oh. thing is, I saw it so much in fandom that it actually snuck into my work. And I'm like, oh, my God, they're scissoring. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's worse than the one-sided conversation that I got. No, it's not. <laughs> it really isn't. It's not. It's not. It's not. Because <laughs> scissoring is a pervasive error, but it is not um, It is not just flat-out wrong the way that POV character not able to tell who the other person is saying. Uh. What it boils down to is a head hop because I was in Lauren's point of view and I meant to switch to Matt's and didn't. And that's why the conversation looks that way because it's a head hop. And um, yeah, it's still terrible though. It's still terrible. Every time I look at it, I just want to cry. Yeah. So in, 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 in that kind of scene, it's just like really focused on, I mean, well, for starters, think about what you're trying to do with the scene, right? What kind of sex scene are you trying to write? Are you trying to write something that is clinical and full of details that are completely irrelevant to the relationship or uh, any kind of sexiness? Then put all of those details in <laughs> because that's what, that's, that's accomplishing. Um, 
But generally, you're writing a sex scene either because it's hot, because you're putting in that kind of that kind of adult dynamic in, or because you're trying to show the character interaction. And that's typically what you see in romance and sex scenes are about furthering their interaction together and about exploring their dynamic together and nothing about um, scissoring, tying off condoms, removing the left sock. None of that furthers (laughs) that goal. My poor sister got back from the grocery store to walk in on that part of the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least it wasn't the part about the filching. Um, that was, you the one said that. She definitely didn't want to hear your side of the conversation. No, no, no. Sorry. <laughs> Just for those of you not listening on the podcast, I really hope you do it with headphones. Um, anyway. <laughs> also, while we're here, since we're discussing it, this is not actually having to do the Edie's question, but if you're writing a sex scene, we should probably have a whole podcast devoted to writing accurate sex scenes. And that you're writing a sex scene that's going to be anal sex. And your POV character is the person who's going to be bottoming. And they get one finger in their butt. And it's agony. And they don't know how they can bear the pain. But they decide to, you know, they're going to, they're going to man up and push through. And they're going to make this happen. All right. If having one finger in your ass is like the most painful thing that's ever happened to you, you're not ready for anal sex. I'm just saying. You are not ready. You're not really ready for any kind of sex at that point because that means you are so tense and fucked up that you're not in the mood for sex. No. The thing about sexual arousal is it kind of relaxes your body and, and gets you, you know, you're all warm and excited and, um, you know, muscles are relaxing and contracting the way they're supposed to. Um, and if you're too tight, anally or vaginally, to insert a single finger, you're not. Right, you're not ready for any kind of penetration. Yeah, you're not ready for literally anything. You probably shouldn't eat either because you're going to have a rough day tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, this is a logical thing, folks. At the risk of getting gross, think about the natural function of this part of the body. It is designed to stretch without it being agony, okay? So the whole idea of... You know, that some guy needs to work for 10 minutes with a single finger and it's really painful. Is Okay, they need to call a halt to things and he needs to go to a doctor because something is wrong. You know, that poor man, he should not be having sex. He needs to be in a clinic. Right, because um, his, his stuff isn't working properly because, um, you know, yeah, to be frank, normal, healthy adults will have a bowel movement that is bigger than a finger. In circumference, I would. It I would. If if you, if you're not, you're not healthy. That's the key word there. Um, right, and so uh, the anus is is meant to be stretched. Uh, I'm not saying that anal sex can um, is uh, completely without discomfort. Um, and, there's a and stretch you do there. have to prepare. You need lube. Yeah, and you do have to prepare. But it shouldn't be agony for anybody. But honestly, and this is this is the truth, folks, the relaxation of the recipient is more important than the number of fingers that they've had shoved up there. Because it doesn't matter how many fingers they've had up there, if they are not relaxed, it's going to hurt. And conversely, if they're really relaxed, maybe have a little bit of weed, they may not need any fingers most of the guys I know don't do any of that kind of stuff. It's like, just slap some lube on and get going. 
because the average penis is not bigger significantly than a bowel movement. That's just the truth. There's not a significant amount of difference. Difference. Yeah, there's not. (laughs) So quit trying to... Okay, here's here's the thing. I'm going to say it. I'm probably going to get some hate mail for it. Ladies, a guy getting fucked, anybody, guy, woman, getting fucked in the ass is not the same thing. The first time is not the same thing as a woman having her hymen broken. Quit trying to make it the same. And that's what I feel like I'm reading when I read scenes like that is they're trying to do some sort of, you know, like it hurts the first time. Especially when I read things like there's just some bleeding the first time. Really? Is there? (laughs) Not if he's doing it right. There should never be any bleeding when you're going back there. Right, when you're anal, yeah. Um, but I will say this. I have seen often lately this, this thing about um, how uh, stretching or, or breaking the hymen shouldn't hurt, ever. And that's not true. Uh, no. There are some women who their hymen is shaped in such a way that it stretches very naturally. They already have a very large opening. Um, and if their partner isn't particularly girthy, yes, that's a word, uh, <laughs> then there's going to be a mild discomfort, girthy, yeah, as they're stretched open, and it might not be painful. But there are other women because the hymen, no, no two hymens are really the same. You know, it's a piece of skin that's growing in your body. It's going to be different. It's going to respond differently how you how you work out, how you exercise. If you rode a bike, if you rode, if you rode horses, it all works differently. And so we're all a little bit different. And for some women. The first time you have sex, it will be painful, and for some it won't. And for some, there will be more blood than you would expect, and for some, there may be just a little bit. And some Girthy. women, and this, That's I've right. I've known, I've known more than one woman. Um, actually, I can think of two in my life who had to have surgical intervention because of abnormal. I, 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 I should think it's like rigidity, thickness of skin in in the hymen. Um, my hymen was sick. I should have had surgery, but my gynecologist wouldn't do it. Um, the last the last time I had a nail gynecologist too, he said that uh, that uh, that he wouldn't. What? How do you phrase it? He wouldn't destroy my virginity, um, and I should have gone to a woman right then. Um, and as mm-hmm. a result of his his um, his stupidity, I'm not even sure what to call that. His misogyny, his his patriarchy. Um, the first three times I had sex was agonizing. Penetrative sex. And my partner was very good. He was he, he he was so upset. I mean, he cried the first time because he thought that he had done serious damage to me. And it was and so that asshole ruined what should have been a really good experience for both me and my partner. That's but don't just, worry though. That's just like appalling. the fourth or the fifth time. We we totally owned that. <laughs> we worked that out. <laughs> but yeah, I barely had enough space in my hymen to insert a tampon before sex. Um, and if I wasn't careful, it would it would hurt a whole lot. And my hymen was three times thicker than it should have been. Yeah. So you know if you're if it does hurt, 
hearing your first time, don't think you're abnormal. And if it doesn't hurt, don't think you're abnormal. There's a there's a range, right? Yep. Um, and if you don't have an opening in your hymen, you need to see the gynecologist. That is super important. Yes, very. That is absolutely. And if your gynecologist tells you not to worry about it and it's a dude, go see somebody else. Try to get him to see a woman because that's just not okay. But here's the thing in contrast. Nobody who makes it to adulthood would have that kind of dysfunction in their ass and not know about it. Okay? Right. The only reason anal sex is completely agonizing beyond not being actually physically ready to have anal sex is if they had hemorrhoids or something. And I don't know how an adult could have hemorrhoids and not know it. Well, you could have them, I guess, in five, but you should, if, if, if they're going to be painful, you would know that they were there and you'd be in pain every time you went to the bathroom. So it's right. not like anything going on up there should be a mystery to you. So your character out of the blue, just having, being agony. So, I mean, I, I do feel like that a little bit of that is they're trying to equate the guy's first time having sex is being sometimes like a woman's first time having sex. And it just, it's just, it's kind of an, it, it honestly, it's an absurdity and it rings so false that I don't even know what to do with myself. Let me, let me tell you the dumbest thing I ever read. I was 15 or 16 and I was reading a Harlequin desire and my mom had let me read Harlequin presents and Harlequin present presentation or something like that oh harlequin presents and um but maybe harlequin intrigue or harlequin regency but she'd never let me read the desire book because they had sex in them and then eventually she said okay you can read the desire books so okay so i picked up a couple and she had a whole collection um and um i'm reading one the heroine doesn't want to have sex with the hero because she finds sex painful okay so, he is not a doctor, but he decides that she probably has a yeast infection, and so he sends her to the gynecologist, and I'll be damned if she didn't have a yeast infection. Now, see, I'm thinking to myself, I take this book to my mama, and I was like, mama, would a grown woman not know when she has a yeast infection? <laughs> But no, baby, that's not the way that works. <laughs> and so she had not read this book. And so I handed it to her. And she went, you know, some asshole man wrote this. She says, don't read this, honey. It's stupid. And she took it away from me. So I never did finish the story. That's the only part that I remember. And I'm like, mama. <laughs> this is just. And so every time there was something stupid or dumb in one of those books about sex, I'd bring it to her. <laughs> and she'd take it to the used bookstore. <laughs> to get rid of it <laughs> I was like how in the hell I mean I, you know even even then and I wasn't sexually experienced then I it was already I was 20 but um 20-ish uh but um uh I, I don't I couldn't figure out how she couldn't know she had a yeast infection and how this man who she barely knew was was like like a vagina guru or something. <laughs> I don't know. It was just dumb. It was just really dumb. That's another Super case dumb. of where I feel like someone's someone's trying to to school the audience on something, and it's like, 
Why? And also, um, there's nothing remotely sexy about a use of affection. No. Ew. So this was a plot point that I think um, basically made the heroine seem naive and foolish about her own body. And that may have been the intent. Maybe. I'm glad my mom took it away from me then. Because for me, there is nothing more um, degrading for me to read something, to read a romance novel um, and and have the heroine be completely and utterly um, incapable of managing her own health. I was like, mm-hmm. I just, I have a real problem with female characters who don't have agency. I, I'm, I would track the same issue with male characters, actually. If you see the same thing happening is I think that they, yeah, you know, it's it's a lot. It it's a lot. Honestly, it's a lot. Women writers is they take that same kind of character dynamic, some facet of characterization, and they have one of the characters be that same way. And you know, I, I just don't, I just don't have a whole lot of patience for those kinds of shenanigans. Nope. 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 I'm not on that. I'm not on board that train. So, Edie, um, do you have any specific questions about, like, anything she, in the chat? Kind of, is she is here, right? Yeah, she's here. Um, to kind of that you'd want us to kind of like zoom in on in terms of like detail and like how we like how we pick the details we're going to use, or um, if you have a specific question about a specific story about like how we picked which details to work with or which details to leave out. Um, Anything specific since this was your question. And if she doesn't have anything specific in that vein, if somebody else does, and you want an answer to about, specifically about details and stories, um, what to use, what not to use. Sometimes the chat, I haven't looked at, I haven't, I'm not really, like, I go back and read the chat, and I was like, well, I wonder what we were talking about when that was coming up. <laughs> Smack that sucker. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly the line. Smack that sucker. I'm like, hmm. I think that was about the gynecologist, actually. Yeah, probably. It feels like the best about the gynecologist. If it wasn't, it should have been. There you go. I, I've, I've decided what, what Barb was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I think sometimes um, when it comes to characterization that uh, you hesitate to give your characters, not you as in you specifically, Jilly, or anybody actually even in the chat room. I mean, you as an author, the author in general, the, the authors sometimes hesitate to give their characters vices. Um There was something that stuck out for me, and I believe I belong to this this Facebook group um, for the Harmony, for the Harry-Hermione pairing. Um, it's a very good group, very fun. Um, lots of lots of active members who, you know, who 
put up story ideas and um, offer links. It's really, it's really cool. Um, but uh, there was a, a member who came in and was specifically, what they said was, is that they didn't like it when um, there were stories post-war where Hermione comes back divorced and um, and gets with Harry like he wasn't good enough to begin with and she's just settling on him. As, as the second choice. And I was like, is that really how you view those stories? Is, is, is that how you look at those stories and think that? And I'm thinking to myself um, that the reader's expectation being that um, her having a relationship with somebody else um, taints her. That she's tainted and, and no longer um, in that they feel comfortable degrading her and assigning terrible motives to her behaviors because she didn't get with Harry immediately after the war. And I'm like, is that is that is that misogyny or is that um, like just shipper mentality? Like, cause I had a um, reader who Oath? was very was very upset that Hermione wasn't a virgin in um, um, Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond, and was also equally upset. When Hermione, when Hermione specifically was not a virgin in Gravity, that her and Harry had both had sexual partners, but for some reason it was really important that um, they expressed their disappointment that Hermione specifically was not a virgin, um, and that maybe hopefully in my next story Harry could be her first. Now, I actually, I did write a Virgin Hermione story, um, obviously. It's courting Hermione Granger. and um, But specifically, I think virginity is a useless social construct that means absolutely nothing to me. Yeah. I tend to find a lot of times when I see a double standard like that, because you didn't notice them saying that Harry shouldn't have been in a relationship. Right. It could be right. super mentality, but it typically, in male-female pairings, it tends to, be focused on the the woman in the relationship, um, and I do I do think it's kind of like a it's it's definitely a double standard, but it might be some internalized misogyny too. Um, that she this was a male what? reader, so I don't okay, think there was well, anything internal just, about the misogyny yeah, at all. If it's male, um, if it's male, then I would just call that misogyny. It's it, 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 and it, you know it, it's definitely sexism that women should have a different standard. Um, there's a different standard that, you know, Hermione should be um, a virgin for Harry. That's just that kind of, that kind of old man mentality. I have no use for that kind of crap. One of the things that I like to explore with the adult versions of, of Harry and Hermione, or even my other characters is um, uh the history that you bring to the table and the mistakes that you've made and the successes that you have, that, that's who you are as a person. That That's what makes you up. You are some of your parts and one of your parts is your experiences and the things that you learn and the lessons that you take away from these experiences. is just, that's just part of life. And so one of the things that, um, 
I approached when I was writing Blank Space is that Hermione is kind of, um, uh, she kind of uses sex as a, um, as a soother. (laughs) It's like, you know, she, she's not very good at commitment. And so she uses sex. She likes to get off, but she's not particularly, um, until Harry, until Harry kind of puts her on the spot, um, she's not really interested in having a a relationship. Falls back to um, the decisions that she made after the war and um, the choices that she made and she regrets. And I think that um, it's it gives her substance. Like when you give your character a bad habit, or when you give your character um, uh, a situation in the past where they made a terrible decision. You're just enriching your character. You're giving them substance and depth. Which is well, so... It's so vital to that because uh, otherwise we start getting into two-dimensional characters. And... Um, I mean, there are times I give characters traits or vices or bad habits or things that I would never do do that. I would never behave in that way or whatever. But the thing is, if all the characters were reflections of me, then all the characters would be self-inserts. Uh, so um, there are char- you know, and also because I, I write characters in lines of work that I would never go into. And of necessity, they would have to have different viewpoints on things. Because um, if they had my viewpoint, they probably a lot of my characters wouldn't do what they do in their um, day-to-day life. And certainly, I I don't know that that, that can really go down a rat hole. But you characters have to have the more they're human, the more you make them human. The give them that is their own uniqueness. The more real they will be. And human is not perfect. Human is flawed. Humans have vices. Humans eat too much cheesecake. Um, I love cheesecake. And again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Um, if everybody thinks it's charming, it's not a flaw. So if they get validated for it and patted on the head, it's not a flaw. So you can't say you're making your character um, flawed when everybody loves the thing they're flawed. It just doesn't make any sense. EDS, so how are men supposed to get all this experience if females are supposed to stay virgins? Lots of Mrs. Robinson scenarios. I think it boils down to the Madonna whore complex. Um, There are women that you fuck around with, and there are women that you marry, and women that you want to marry should remain pure. (laughs) I think a lot of men think that way. mm -hmm. It's a big old double standard. I was exploring that double standard in that story, Edie. Edie says, I really enjoyed the way you explored that in the fic with Ron dr- dragged her- Harry and Hermione before the wizard, uh, the wizard court for being lovers during the war. That is um, the honor duel, and it's on EAD. Um, I have a lot more of that written. Um, but it's, um, yeah, it's about exploring that, that concept that um, that her worth as a human being was less because her hymen was missing, which is bullshit. So much it's, bullshit. That's complete and utter bullshit.
what the hymen is, it's inconvenient. <laughs> that is 100% of what the hymen is. It is an inconvenient flap of skin. <laughs> Period. Mm-hmm. And we're hopeful that evolution will take care of it for us. Eventually it'll just kind of go, oh, that's not needed. Let's just take it away. Speaking of evolution, um, elephants are being born. Like there's a section of, of, of Africa where elephants are heavily poached. And there are elephants being born without tusks. Really? Yes. Oh, that's not nearly as entertaining as the troop of gorillas who are learning to, um, who have learned and are passing on these skills to their children how to uh, throw uh, poaching traps and dismantle them. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Evolution, people. Evolution. Um. But uh, nature finds a way. Barbara made a cheesecake on Tuesday. She's in her. Is she up in my up in my chat room bragging about it? That's some shit. Last cheesecake I made was on Township. <laughs> There's a cheesecake on Township. I don't even want to know. I don't yeah, even want to know. Yeah, it's in the pastry factory. It's like after the chocolate donut. But what I want to know is how the chocolate donut happens when you put chocolate and a bagel together. Because I don't think chocolate and bagel and whatever the fuck that is. um, Hold on. Chocolate, caramel, and a bagel turns into a donut in the pastry factory. I'm not buying it. more sense. It makes slightly more sense than tomatoes, potatoes, and cream turning into French fries. I don't understand yeah. the cream part of that equation. I have a real problem I mean, with that. I don't know what to do with the cream. It, it bothers me a lot. Um, but you know what bothers me more? The fact that I have to put five eggs in a single cupcake. Dude, what is the eggs in the pastry factory? What the fuck? <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Township. I hate those. It's not chickens. a game. It's a lifestyle. <laughs> our crack with our crackhead chickens. <laughs> I, they also look. Uh, um, they look kind of like roosters, actually. Are the chickens? Do they look like roosters to you? I mean, <laughs> they lay eggs. So we just assume that they're hens. But I mean, they could be mutant roosters. That might why they look so deranged. Someone's done some unethical medical experiments on them and made them all these roosters lay eggs. It's a regular size cupcake, and you only get one cupcake. It is ridiculous. I'm just saying. One fucking cupcake, and for one cupcake... You're right. They are fucking roosters. (laughs) (laughs) They're roosters. They look like roosters to me. I mean, I'm not. 
I'm not any kind of chicken expert, but once they were out of their mummy outfits, my first thought of them was, look like roosters. <laughs> I can't even. But they look like crackheads is what they look like. Look at that one on the end in the picture I just put in the chat room. They look like crackheads. Yes, now we need five rooster eggs. Five rooster eggs, yes. <laughs> that, is, that is some deranged shit, man. This, see, this, this Township, you didn't know that Township was very relevant to the mutant theme for Nano this year. <laughs> <laughs> mutant chickens. Have you seen, there have you looked at the sign? Have you looked at, you know how you, you know you can change your town sign, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. This is relevant then, but for, for in terms of for the the sign that unlocks at level forty. Have you looked at that? <laughs> it's a cow. <laughs> oh, it's a cow with its udders proudly on display. It is like it's like they it's like it's like that they is heard hilarious. that it's like they heard that people had. The comments about the the way they handled the udders or something, and they decided to just own it and put that udder right out there. So, you know, ass uh, in the air. I don't even know. I do not want to see what impregnated the rooster chickens. <laughs> <laughs> I have no desire. But you know, Ellie, we get to um, chickens lay eggs whether they're fertilized or not. Playing township, and it's just deeply unfortunate with the animals. Everything else, there's nothing. The animals, there's all there's with every animal I've encountered so far. There is something like the chickens are just what the fuck because they're roosters. The cows, when they're ready to be milked, they go butt to you, and and it's it's utter in your face. It's it's all utter all the time, it's, and um, it's like. You want to apologize for invading their space? <laughs> like, yeah, oh, it man, does. I'm, I'm it, sorry. It, it does feel like that you've gotten like you that these lady cows. You, you know, they need a privacy curtain or something, and um, <laughs> and the sheep go from looking like they're drowning in wool. I mean, like little cotton balls, to these shivery naked little things that you could be shivering from space if you forget to feed them. Um, we should so take look. some screenshots and post them on Facebook. Pro tip, if you start playing Township, you will get a little sheep thing, um, and you can add your sheep. Do not harvest your wool until you have enough food to feed your sheep, because it will be emotionally traumatizing. <laughs> yes, yeah, <laughs> so leave your sheep shiver, and even when you're the not in the sheep time. barn, you're going to be able to see them shiver. It's terrible. Yes, Edie, it is utterly shocking. The first time you, you see will the make, others. You will so, feel like a monster. It will be terrible. And so they went all in on their awful animals for the the town sign for level 40. Um, and it's funny as fuck because that's a case of where you do you and they went, okay, I mean, we talk about if you want to do that, do it, but own it. This is what they did. They owned it. They owned their utter problems. <laughs> hey, you guys have fun because of games like this. It helps me order Kira my mind. I, yeah, Kira and I can't even play together because we're on different platforms. We play the same game, but she's on Windows and I'm on 
whatever the fuck I, I'm, I'm, I'm the, on the, what they call the mobile. I'm on the mobile platform, which is and the and the iOS two shall not Android. meet. Yes, they don't. They don't want those. They don't want those touching. Apparently. So. <sighs> yeah. Although I also downloaded a game that some of you might like. Um, if you like um, like puzzles and mysteries and find find object games, it's called um, Seeker's Notes: The Hidden Mystery. It's pretty slick. Oh, Seeker's I'm enjoying Notes great. Seeker's Notes is yeah. great. Um, I've played it obsessively, like hours and hours a day for a while. I got a little bit burned out on it, um, but yeah, it's it's a really good game. Um, I wanted to mention about when it comes to details about what you're going to focus on, because one of the things we have to do is you can't, well, you could, but in general, it's not typically a good idea to have all the discussion in the conversation between the characters, there's, there's some, there's some, there's what I would call some irrelevancy in your discussions that characters have. Um, But all of the discussions that they have, whatever they talk about, whether it's relevant to the plot or not, it should be relevant to their dynamic and it should show something about how they interact and, there should be some element there, some deliberateness. So if you're looking to just show, like, a character's talking, they're having a conversation over dinner, they're discussing things of the day, it can't just be about, you know, whatever's on task. They need to have some social chatter or whatever. That, I, that's one of the areas where you can put some thought into what they're going to talk about and have it really work for your story. If your characters are discussing coffee, it's not working for your story. If they're discussing paint colors, it's probably, I mean, this is the case of probably. Most of the time, that kind of minutia kind of everyday run-of-the-mill small chit-chat, that doesn't really typically help your characterization dynamic at all. So that is an area where you can with, be a little bit thoughtful um, about how you um, – Choose the, the topic of conversation so that it can show something personal, something um, funny, something that gives them a connection. And people don't typically have profound connections over beverages, over um, – they can grab coffee, but to actually talk about the coffee is just an it, – it's inane conversation filler. And if the – if the non-essentials, we'll call it non-essential conversation, which means it's not essential to your plot. So the non-essential conversation should be essential to the relationship. And if it's not, if it's not showing their dynamic, if it's not showing how they interplay off each other, then you might want to pick a different topic of discussion. And it's very difficult to show any kind of depth when you're talking about coffee, tea, um, paint color, you know, what's your favorite color? Although I did do a what's your favorite color thing in a humorous kind of way in a story once. But um, it just kind of put a little bit of thought into what you're going to have your filler conversation be because those are your opportunities 
where you're not moving the plot forward to move your relationship and your characters forward. And you aren't going to get there with lattes. Usually. Nothing is absolute. But usually, when I I was single, offering me coffee was a really good way to get a date. (laughs) (laughs) Coffee? I'm working on a story where one of the characters is um, thinks he's flirting with the other character by bringing him coffee, and the other character just like doesn't get it. And it's not uh, it shouldn't. I don't even want it to be obvious to the audience because when the when the when you know character who's being flirted with is told, "I was flirting with you. I brought you coffee." He's like, "Wait, what? That was flirting." But then my barista's been hitting on me for years, dude. What the fuck? You should have been a little bit more overt. What's the matter with you? Because I want it to be so (laughs) subtle that the audience doesn't get it either until they're just as astonished as the main character about that this was a flirtation overture, was I brought you coffee. It's like you're my fucking roommate, asshole. Of course you brought me coffee. Um, So... So in that case, I'm using coffee specifically because it's so irrelevant. It's off this character's radar. It's like, hey, thanks, man. It moves on. He doesn't even notice anything about the coffee. And then when he finds out that this has been an overture flirtation from somebody who's a really bad flirt, he's like, what? That's not flirting. (laughs) So make sure you have a flirt. Still stand still for a minute. We're going to skip, go straight from flirting to sex, you know. So, um, but in general, use those conversations, those conver- non-essential to the plot conversations, where you're kind of rounding out a scene, rounding out your character, to make them relevant to the character, make them relevant to the relationship. And one of the ways you can do that is either how they react to things that are being said, or in actually in what they say. They can share significant details, talk about a fun childhood memory that fleshes out how they knew each other when they were younger. Because that's actually better to have characters reminisce over a childhood memory to show that they've known each other since they were kids than to spend two paragraphs explaining how they knew each other when they were kids. Anyway, um, but you can pick your discussion topics, your supposedly banal discussion topics that you're using to kind of round out a scene to actually further character and relationship dynamics. Or they can just be stuff that people skim. Um, I skip stuff like that. If it's not making me curious what's going on with the characters, I just skip it. It's like, I don't know why I'm reading this. I don't care how he takes his coffee. Um, Yeah, but I mean, there are cases where definitely you can make coffee into something significant, like, you know, Kara's talking about that it could be a clue that you got an imposter, especially in a sci-fi world. Um, Like if Gibbs started suddenly taking tea, I mean, everybody, literally, like, not only should should the characters have whiplash, the audience would have whiplash, too. It's like, what? Are you sure? What do you mean? What do you mean green tea? Are you Okay. Um, so Did you have a stroke over the weekend? <laughs> yeah. Or are you a gold? <laughs> oh, there was a um, 
I'm thinking about food irrelevancies. And sometimes I put things in the stories that are going to be relevant that seem banal, and then I don't ever quite get to the thing that was relevant. I don't ever go back and take out the thing that, you know, anyway, that's happened to me. Um, there's my first Tony Steve story was everything they said. And they're talking about pineapples and bananas at the front of the story. And that actually was really relevant to a plot point that would come up later. And I kind of foreshadowed what that, what that was in that story. But then that story got so long on me that I replotted the end and the plot point where pineapples and bananas were relevant. It's just completely gone. So it just wound up kind of being this random discussion about pineapples and bananas. Um, in the chat room but yeah so sometimes you do try to do something deliberate with stuff like that and then it just doesn't ever wind up working out but yeah but in general I try to choose my conversational topics and stories with a little bit of deliberate liberation so that I am at least, if not furthering the plot, I'm at least furthering the relationship or the character dynamics or whatever. So that's a whole different kind in, of detail then. In um, in Blank Space, when Hermione first goes over to, to, to Harry's house when he's come back to Britain, and they sit down and have a meal, and they have a conversation, during that conversation, I tell you basically who survived and who didn't in the war. Like, you know that the twins not only survived, but they procreated, <laughs> and they married the same woman. Um, you know that Tonks and Remus died because Teddy is living with his grandmother, and, and you know, that's a problem. You know you know that Jenny's not married, and, you know, so all these things happen in that conversation to kind of fill you out without Harry spending a whole chapter musing about the war. And that you know that Harry yeah. came out of the war with Kingsley very much on his side as a as a mentor and as um, someone who wants Harry to succeed. And that's much better the way you did that with the conversation and just a quick recap, friends catching up, than you know two pages of reflection which I find to be often the least useful detail, useful parts of stories is characters reflecting on shit that actually, you know, it's not that you need to know, but it's just not a very interesting way to get it. Sometimes, sometimes I would say sometimes it is better. If the detail is not important, it is better to give one paragraph of explanation about it than two or three pages of a conversation about it. If it's not terribly important but I would say typically that's more the exception, not the rule. It also did something else in that conversation in that a lot of the things that Harry asked her about, Hermione would have assumed he would know because they would have appeared in the papers. And they appeared in the British papers, but it gave the reader a window to the fact that Harry lived abroad and basically no one gives a shit what happened <laughs> to to war heroes in Britain. 
so these didn't make headlines internationally. They're like, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> who cares who Ron Weasley marries? <laughs> you know, yeah. it broadened your view of the world that Harry um, left Britain for. And that not only did he leave Britain, but he didn't even bother to pick up the profit as an international subscription. <laughs> yeah, because he yeah, exactly speaks a lot his about him. Break. Yeah. yeah, his break from That he completely was done. In a very, without saying he was completely done, it shows that he was completely done. And he was <laughs> that disinterested in what was going on. He's like, oh, I'm so done with you bitches. I don't even want your gossip. <laughs> all you want your fucking paper but yeah so you know these are the kinds of things that you can work into a conversation that build um that that build wor- that are world building they're character building and they provide you plot threads that you can move through um and uh what's really interesting is that someone said they really liked how i portrayed the twins in blank space and I'm like, thank you, that's so great, considering Fred and George are never once on screen in blank space. No, I'm sorry, huh. Steely, thank you, because... <laughs> well, you did convey a lot about them without ever having them around. Right, because um, when Harry goes to the Weasleys, Fred and George are at St. Mungo's with their wife because she's giving birth to her second set of twins, and their sons are playing in the living room um, with Ron when Harry arrives. And then most of the other information about the twins comes from Teddy, who interacts with them and sometimes works in their store. You give a lot of information about the characters um, who are moving in the background of the story who don't appear, but the reader still isn't left wondering what happened to them. Yeah. You can give characters a lot of presence. You can give characters a lot of presence and not ever have them on screen. I think one of the biggest characters in memories is Tony, and he's never on screen. Is he like one? Like at the very end? Yeah, the very last or... scene. Yeah, in the very last no, the very last scene he's his when he's not finally on screen. But really he was have there a the conversation whole time. about Yeah, Gibbs is thinking yeah. about it the whole time. But Evie asked if I would take that conversation with the pineapples and bananas out and um and no. Uh because I do still plan to my hope is to actually write the sequel to that story one day. Where that story was originally going to end was the day that Steve and Tony leave the center. And Tony meets um, Danny and Grace. And there was a com- comment that Danny made at the beginning about the Grace headed bananas. And um, it's a universal trait of Sentinels that they don't like bananas. By the way, folks, that's all me. I hate bananas. <laughs> I was I love bananas. I was trying to pick a food that all so Sentinels bad. would hate. And I decided to go with the fruit that I can't stand, which is bananas. Um, so, and I hate Danny though. said no. He, Danny said no. He'd had her tested, and she doesn't have her. She doesn't have the the, the gene, so she's. It's not a sentinel thing. It's just that she doesn't like bananas. Um, well, when Tony meets her, he knows she's she's on the cusp of coming online, and and that's relevant because 
um, Rachel got those test results falsified so that she could get custody of Grace because um, as, a, as a budding sentinel, Grace would have gone to her sentinel father in a custody arrangement, not to his mundane mother, her mundane mother. So um, it was a little bit of a, it was, it was to set up Danny's arc because I intended to write a story for Danny, which was to be the sequel. Um, about Danny getting custody and finding his own guide and all that kind of shenanigans. So it was that little t- that little bit about the bananas and that little comment about Grace was setting up for when Tony meets Grace and that it, it, Tony knows that she's about to come online. So that was why that was where that story was really going to end. Um, was when he meets God. Rachel the first should go part to jail of, for that shit. I'm mad yeah. now. <laughs> So that was going to be Tony meets the first members of what will be his pride is in, in Danny and Grace. And um, and it becomes really relevant because it's like the first thing that he, they have to do as a, as a pair is deal with, with, with what Rachel has done um, to suppress Grace's um, sentinel genetics. So that's why I decided not to take that. You know that to that out. Also, any kind of conversation about pineapple is very um, on brand for Hawaii Five O. So I, I typically wouldn't remove a conversation about pineapple. Um, Can I? So that's why I chose to leave it in. If I ever write that sequel, um, I, it, the setup for that is still embedded in the first story. So that's why Who's I, I chose to go ahead and leave it. Who's Danny's guy? Uh, Danny's guy. Yeah, this guy is an OC, played by Rachel oh, McAdams. Okay. Somebody cool. that Tony knows. I'm digging it. So yeah, so that was that was like it, it was something that had intended to be something that didn't wind up being something, but I still left it there because it's foreshadowing for the sequel. Something. But it hit, <laughs> I, I had planned. And one I day planned it will be something. Story. One day it will be. I had planned to end that story in a different place than I ended it, and it was it was a July challenge, and the story was uh, it was longer than I expected, and I decided I could you know it wasn't going to hurt anything to end it before he got discharged from the center, and that the first scene it changes the vibe a little bit, but the first scene in the next story would be actually I w- it wouldn't even be I would have to change I wouldn't want to have the first scene in the next story take place like the next day. So it would actually be, um, he would actually, I would change when he meets Grace, is have it be later, as opposed to Grace being with her father when they get out of the center. So it just required a little bit of plot juggling that wasn't particularly significant. So um, I was trying to cut my word count down to stay a little bit closer to the challenge parameters, and that was the decision I made, was to lose that scene. I can be. I know. I know some right. A, a lot of writers I work with find their, we'll call it stuff that isn't helping the story, their irrelevancies, whatever they want to, whatever term they want to put out. They find it more in their editing process. I tend to really notice it as I'm starting to write it. Like this is not helping my story, and so that's why it's not uncommon for me to pause when I'm writing and start rip out parts of my plot because I notice it when I'm writing it that it's not serving the story. And that's not good, bad, or indifferent. It's just a different writing style. Some people never notice it. Some people notice it when they're editing. Some people notice that fluff in the plot, which I typically – I don't notice it in the plotting. I don't notice the, the stuff I don't need in the plot. I notice it when I go sit down to start putting – start writing and go, how is this helping me? And then I stop and I fix it. And 
I think probably everybody wishes they did it somewhere different than they do. But it, I your do. style is I wish style. that I could plot my fluff, but I don't plot my fluff. <laughs> the fluff happens during the writing process, and then I'm like, in editing, I'm like, why am I, that's not in my document. Why the hell is it? Damn it. <laughs> like it, it's wild fluff. It's feral fluff. It just comes out of nowhere. Wild feral fluff. And you have to be careful with the wild feral fluff because, you know, you can introduce something with wild feral fluff. I, I haven't actually seen Kira do this, but I have seen authors do it where they go, oh, that seems like a good idea. And it's like, do you realize that you just, like, broke the laws of physics with that bit of wild feral fluff? It just it shattered your world building. It, it, it broke your world building. Your entire world world no longer makes sense. Um, well, I have done it, but I always – one of my better skills is catching the ramifications of the stupid shit that I do um, when I'm – when I go off the rails, you know. Yeah. I usually catch my stuff, except for that one time I wrote Mel Prague and no one told me, <laughs> including myself. <laughs> well, I, the best I actually I actually had to have it pointed out to me that that was the Mel Prague you were talking about, because you talked about Mel Prague by accident in that story. I'm like, there's no Mel Prague in that story. And you had to flat out tell me that it was the ship, and I was like, well, okay, fine, 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 <laughs> I mean, yes. I only figured somebody... it out. I was like, for fuck's sake, look what I did. <laughs> there's really only two. There's only two people. There's only two classes of people who are going to really notice that: people who hate it and people who would love it. And everybody else is oblivious. <laughs> like, no, I don't know. Yeah, it was a ship. It was a ship. It reproduced. Whatever. I mean, if we're talking about the boundaries and possibility, the, the, the male pregnant okay? is not it. it. He's a seahorse. He's a seahorse, yeah. But when it comes to the improbable things that happen in sci-fi, the fact that the ship is reproducing should be the first improbable thing that people are focusing, not the fact that the ship was male. (laughs) (laughs) They sexually, dude, and you're focused on the fact that it was a male ship, really? That's where your brain is? Okay. For some reason, I I was trying to find one of my own posts in. I was trying to find that I had asked for Team Wolf Rex in um, MHQ the other day. And I was trying to find that post. And I, it was far enough down that I couldn't find it, so I searched for my own name. And the second hit when I searched for my own name was a post of mine from way back in 2014 from this guy who had written me annoyed about that I put Mprag in the story. And it was implied. It wasn't even on screen. It's not like he had to see some unfortunate thing in the story. And that he couldn't, you know, imagine. It's something about him not being able to imagine. You know, he he expected better than it from a writer like me than to put something that improbable in a story. And my response was really pithy about, the, you know, the plausibility of dragon shifters and all of this other stuff and, and magic and um, transfiguration and all this stuff because it's just so funny that with all of the implausibilities that I write about that that's the one that really got him bent <laughs> was a wizard having <laughs> well, no, a baby it got him bent because um, it was an affront to his masculinity yeah
Well, I did deliberately get Theseus pregnant. I just never really connected it to male preg until I did. Well, at least you connected it. As opposed to going, I've, I've. From a technical point of view, Theseus is both male and female. Um, if you want to get super technical about it, <laughs> because yeah. of Atlantis. Anyways, we're but, down to a minute and 23 seconds. But at least you saw it as opposed to you going, I've never written that. And somebody going, oh, yes, you did. <laughs> and you go, I know, right? I'd have been so affronted. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about Don't Theseus, tell me Kira? about my and, own damn work. <laughs> and you said, going, Theseus is basically a plant. Shut up. <laughs> He's a seahorse. Anyways, you guys... Have a great evening, and we'll catch you later. Say good night, Julie. Good night, everyone. Ah.